Well, if you have your copy of God's Word and would like to open up to Micah chapter 5, we're going to jump back into, after one week break for Easter, jump back into our study of Micah. And while you're turning there, I want to uh, give you a, a phrase that came to my mind a lot this week, and that is the once and future king. The once and future king. I don't know if you've ever heard that phrase before, if you're familiar with the, with the legend of King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table, the once and future king was a title that was given to him, given to King Arthur in a prophecy, in, in some sort of mystical thing. And so they viewed it as this idea that Arthur, when he would become this great king in England or wherever he was, he would be this great king. And then one day he would come again and be a great king again. Kind of sounds a little bit familiar. In uh, his Fellowship of the Rings trilogy, J.R.R. Tolkien, in the very last book, in the very last movie, depending on which you prefer, Tolkien talks about the idea that there is this king from of old who is coming back to reign in justice, and it's not without this great battle that he's going to do this. He has, he's, he's, he's an heir of a great king of the past, and so he gets to step into step into this new reign. And and there's something in us that longs for, that desires those good old days. There's something in us that looks back and says, hey, we want these good old days. We've seen that, as I said, with Tolkien and even in our political parties, we want to return to the great days of the past. We want to return the Republicans. They want the next great Reagan or Lincoln The Democrats want to look back to Kennedy or FDR. And we want to return to the glory days of when those guys reigned and served our nation. And I think it's interesting that all of this desire for greatness of the past is to be expected. The greatness of the past expected into the future actually finds its roots in Scripture. You see, from creation's point of view, there is paradise. God created everything a certain way, and he wanted it. He intended it to be that way. And then we have paradise lost, and that is where humanity's sin stained all of the world. And now we live in the corruption of that, longing for the return to paradise, what some people have called paradise regained. We could also call this creation fall, redemption, and that consummation, that coming back together of all that God had intended. There is something in us that knows that things aren't the way that they're supposed to be, and we long for that return to what God intended. And just as we experience that now, I think so too did the people of Israel and Judah. As, as you, if you remember, over the last several weeks, we've been looking at the book of Micah. We've been seeing and reading through the prophecy, what he called out for in the people of Israel and Judah, because what he saw was injustice and idolatry. These people that were supposed to be dedicated to God were worshiping other idols. These people who were supposed to be acting with justice were acting with injustice. We're taking advantage of the weak. We're robbing from the very people they should have been protecting. And so in all of that, Micah, as we saw before, has promised an exile. He said very soon, actually in reality for the people of Judah, it was going to be 150 years. For the northern kingdom of Israel, it was really going to be any day. But very soon, they would go off into exile. An outside nation would come in 
invade them, conquer them, and take away a good chunk of who they were. But that was not without hope. Because God said, through Micah, he said, I'm, gonna, I'm going to redeem you. I'm going to pull you back. I'm going to bring you back from where you were. And they would only spend 70 or so years in that foreign nation. And here in chapter 5, God, through Micah, is promising the person, the king, the restorer, who would bring people back, who would restore things to the way they should be. And so if you want to follow along in your outline, here's where your notes pick up. And that is that Micah is referring to, he's talking about the ancient king. He's talking about an ancient king. If, if you have your Bibles open and want to see in, in Micah 5, verse 2, it says, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans from Judah, from you shall come forth from me one who is to be ruler in Israel, who is coming, whose, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. You see, up to this point, so much of the prophecy and preaching in, in, that Micah has been giving has been pointed at Jerusalem. Because Jerusalem had become the seat of political power. Jerusalem had become the seat of religious power. Jerusalem had also become the seat of corruption. The entire nation was becoming corrupt because at the very heart, Jerusalem had become corrupt. And so what Micah says here is, is he makes a shift and he's, he's not focusing on Jerusalem anymore. Instead, he's focusing on Bethlehem, and he's making a prophecy about Bethlehem, which, of course, is why we sang that good old Christmas carol. I hope that was okay. But Micah is saying that this king, this ancient king, will be ancient because he comes from Bethlehem. Well, why Bethlehem? Why this place? Well, Bethlehem was the birthplace of David. David and his family grew up in, in and around Bethlehem. But interestingly, this is also an implication that the king, this coming king, this ancient king who's going to come again, come in the future, is coming from an area of weakness, oh, an area of weakness. Notice Micah says, but you, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. You see, back in the conquest, if you remember in Israel's history, Israel was in Egypt and Moses led them out of Egypt into wandering around in the, in the wilderness for 40 years. And then finally, Joshua was able to take them into the promised land. Well, in the conquest, Joshua, in Joshua chapter 15, lists all these cities of Israel and Judah. And you know what city is left out? Bethlehem. Bethlehem is so small, it's not even listed among all the places. And yet we think about Bethlehem so highly. Years ago, I got, Danielle and I got to go to Israel, and we would go and, and see. We went to Jerusalem. We went to all these other places, and we, made, uh, we made it, intentionally made it to Bethlehem. And now there's a big church on the place where they think that Jesus was born. Bethlehem is significant for us because of what happened there many years later. But for them, Bethlehem was a nothing town, hmm. sort of like an exurb of a major city. But then thinking about this, because David was from Bethlehem, this descendant, this king, would be from David. David was one of Israel's greatest kings. And so this guy, this future king, would have his roots in David. It's almost like, again, looking back and thinking about those great political leaders of America's past. These future leaders might have the, 
the, the character and the qualities of guys like Lincoln and Roosevelt and Reagan and Washington. It would be a return to a king like David who would bring a glorious and, and prosperous environment. But there's, there's something else. Not only is, is Micah saying, hey, look, this guy's going to be from David's town. He's going to be of old from David's line. But he makes another statement and said that he's going to be from of old, from eternity past. Micah uses an interesting phrase in that he says from of old, from ancient days. And that word old implies from an ancient foundation, from times past. And there's also a, uh, an element, there's also an eternal element. And in fact, in, in uh, the book of, in, in the Old Testament, in Hebrew, that word old is used twice, specifically referring to God, but it's not translated into English as old. If you want to write this down, Habakkuk 1.12 says this, are you not from everlasting? That word everlasting is the same word that Micah used that gets translated as old. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? And then in Deuteronomy 33.27, the eternal God is your dwelling place, and underneath are the everlasting arms. These two times that the Hebrew uses that word old, uses that word eternal or from everlasting to describe God. Now Micah is saying that this king, this ancient king, doesn't only have roots in David, roots in Israel's history, but he has roots in eternity, in divinity. He is a divine king. This king will be ancient, but Micah also prophesies that this king will be the future king. Look at verses 3 and 4 in, in Micah chapter 5. It says, Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. You see, for them, one of the things Micah is saying is, hey, this king, this future king is coming in the future. He is coming and look forward to that, hope for that day. Yes, God will allow his punishment. In fact, he talks about there's like this fixed time frame. For those of you women who have had kids, you know how long a baby should be in utero, right? I mean, ideally, it should be about how long? Nine months or 10 months, depending on how you count it, right? Or 40 weeks. And we know that if it's before that, well, it's a little earlier. If it's after that, you're thinking, oh, can this please come, right? And so God, it's almost as though he's saying he's coming in the future. Look forward to that day, and it will be at a set time. Israel and Judah would have to endure the wrath of God. And Jesus, he came the first time in the future for them, for in the future for them and, and uh, for us in, in our past. And we have to recognize that he will come again. We get that joy, that hope of looking forward to his coming again. His first coming inaugurated a kingdom that would permeate all of the world so that when he comes again, his reign will be instituted fully and globally. He is coming in the future. But in addition to coming in the future, Micah tells us that he is coming at the right time. Micah alluded to th this coming like a woman in labor. The birth pangs are strong, 
And the exact date is uncertain, but we know it's coming. It's coming soon. And Paul used similar language to help us realize that Jesus is that future king. In Galatians 4.4, he says, but when the fullness of time had come, and that word is, it really has all, I hope you have in your mind a woman who was full and ready to give birth. When the fullness of time, when time was pregnant, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. When time was pregnant, Jesus was born. And just as he came at the right time in Israel's future and in our past, Paul says that there is yet a future coming when the, mysterious, the mystery of Christ will be revealed. Ephesians 1.10 says it will be revealed as the plan for the fullness of time to unite all things under him, in heaven, things in heaven and things on earth. And I want us to understand that not only is there this global, there's this massive implication for this, but we have to recognize that even, even as so often we pray, even as so often we petition the Lord and say, God, we need help in this situation. We need healing for this person. We need wisdom for this situation. We need relief from this pain. We have to recognize that God, when he does act, he does so at the right time. He's not too early. And he's not too late. And what may feel like birth pangs for us may be premature. We need to persevere and wait for God's perfect timing to bring the answer, to bring the relief that he is, he is going to do. So this king will come at the right time in the future, but also this king is going to come in strength. You see, just as a shepherd would stand to protect his flock, and I love that imagery of a shepherd because a shepherd, if, if you remember in, in reading stories about King David, King David was a shepherd over his father's flock, and he, he, was, he, he shepherded in strength in order to hold off or in order to repel predators who would want to take his father's sheep. So this coming king is going to come in strength in order to hold back, in order to push back, in order to repel, in order to protect God's people from that which would want to destroy them. But he's also, as a shepherd, coming compassionately. I mean, think about the way that a shepherd knows his sheep. But he's also coming in the name of God. We discussed recently that when someone comes in the name of someone else, they're coming in their authority. When we send ambassadors all over the world, they go in the authority under the name of the United States of America, under the name of the president of the country. And so, too, this king is going to come in the name of God. This king is going to come with the authority and even the blessing of God as a representative or an agent or an ambassador of God because there is no higher authority than God. But also he's coming in security. He will bring security to his people, eternal security, which results in peace, as that passage that Dan read ended, ended with. I was telling the high schoolers this morning that I, I got a chance to read a really small book, and I want to commend it to you. It's called The Freedom of Forgetfulness. It's by a guy named Tim Keller. It's really small. It's only 30 pages. You'll enjoy it. Those of you guys who hate reading will enjoy this book. But one of the things that Keller talked about is this, is that so often we, um, 
We have our identity and self-esteem wrapped up in what other people think about us. And think about how insecure that is. Oh, if, if, I, if I act this way, then maybe that person will like me, right? We're always worried, what's going to happen over here? What's going to happen over there? But then he says an interesting thing. Not only do we worry about what other people think, but then he goes another sense and he says, we worry about what we think. Oh, man, I am whatever we want to think. Maybe we have a low self-esteem. Maybe, we, get, maybe we, we beat ourselves up over our own sinful inclinations. Maybe we get so bound up in that. And, and what, what Keller is talking about, what he pulls out of Scripture, is something that I think this coming king, something that Jesus does, and that is because he died on the cross and paid for our sin, took our condemnation on himself, now we don't have to worry about what other people think, right? Jesus took care of that. And we don't have to worry about what we think. Jesus took care of that too. All we have to worry about is what God thinks, what Jesus thinks about us. And think about that. If, if God, in his love for you and me, remember we sang this earlier, uh, our sins, they are many, but his mercy is what? More. Our sins, they are many, but his mercy is so much more. So now that we know that because of Jesus Christ, we are not identified by our sin. We, are, we don't have to be bound up by our own self-esteem. We don't have to be bound up by the opinion of other people. We only need to think about what God would think of us. Imagine the security there is in that, recognizing that you are an image bearer of God. You've been set free if you trusted him by faith from the bondage of your sin. You're not identified by that sin. You're identified now by the blood of Jesus Christ, eternally secure. This coming king, when he comes in the future, is going to come bringing security. Romans 8.1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then later in that chapter, Paul continues, Romans 8, 31 to 39. The New Living Translation says it this way, what shall we say about such wonderful things as these? If God is for us, who can be against us? Since he did not spare even his own son, but gave, himself, gave him up for us all, won't he also give us everything else? Who dares to accuse us whom God has chosen for his own, no one. For God himself has given us right standing with himself. Who then can condemn us? No one. For Christ Jesus died for us and was raised to life for us, and he is sitting at the right hand, at the place of honor, at God's right hand, pleading for us. Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? As the scriptures say, for your sake we are killed every day. We are being slaughtered like sheep. No, despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love, neither death nor life, neither angels, nor demons, neither our fears for today or our worries about tomorrow, not even the power of hell can separate us from God's love. 
No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. When Jesus came, he came as that future king for Israel. He came in the strength of God, in the name of God. He came in security, bringing eternal security for you and me if we would just believe. And then there's another glorious thing. We saw this a little bit last week when we thought about Easter and the ramifications of what the cross, what Jesus did on the cross, and that not only is he coming in the future and and all these things we've discussed, he's coming to reign globally. He's coming to have a reign over the ends of the earth. Tim Keller suggested when he preached on this that this will be a multi-ethnic reign. He will reign to the ends of the earth, and it's not going to be limited geographically. So not only is this coming king an ancient king, and he's going to be a future king for them, but also this coming king is the present king. He's not just a king in the past he's, and an expected king in the future. Jesus is king now, but he's king of a different kind of kingdom. A kingdom marked by love and sacrifice. He's not returning great political and military strength to Israel and Judah, but he is securing a kingdom in the strength and majesty of God, of Yahweh. We're going to look at this a little bit next week, but if you have your Bibles open, look at verse 7 real briefly. It's not going to be on the screen. But in verse 7, as I said, we'll see this next week, it says this, Then the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many people. So I want you to picture this. You have this small group of people, Jacob referring to Israel. This this remnant is now in the midst of many people like dew from the Lord, like showers on grass which delay not for man nor wait for the children of men. And I bring that up because I think it's so interesting when we look at the fact that God's people, this remnant will be spread about all over the place. Think about that picture, like dew on grass. The people of God in the present right now need to be that refreshing, that blessing, like dew that falls on the grass in so many places, bringing refreshment and life and hope to the nations. And I wonder how we are doing with that. Can our neighbors call us dew? So this ancient king is the future king, and he's the present king, but there's one final question, and that is, is he your king? You see, in a physical, in a geopolitical kingdom, there is no choice. For the people in England, in a few weeks, they're going to have a coronation of their next monarch, right? When King Charles becomes officially King Charles, they don't have a say. They don't have a, a vote. They don't get to say, I want him. I don't want him. In our culture, in our context, we get to choose every few years who our leaders are. But when we look at the fact and when we recognize that Jesus is this ancient king, this future king, the present king, when we allow him to be our king, we willingly surrender our lives to him. We willingly yield. And some people will say, well, maybe there is no choice in that. I think God's love is so compelling that we can't help but respond. 
And when we acknowledge his reign and rule, we follow his commands and we plunge deep into following his lead. Is Jesus your king? Can you be identified as one of his people? And again, when, when Keller preached on this, he said there are four things that we have to do to make Jesus our king. And the first one is to believe in his death. Believe in his death. In this, we acknowledge our sin problem and realize that he paid for, he covered your sin and mine. And we get plunged into his death. Romans 6 4 to 8 says, We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will live with him. So is he your king? Do you believe, first of all, in his death? And if you haven't yet believed in his death, I want to encourage you, talk to someone, talk to your neighbor, talk to me after church, or let's get a cup of coffee sometime this week, and let's open up the word so I can help you understand what it means to believe in his death, why his death was so crucial. Because truth be told, his death was needed because my sin and your sin was so great. For the wages of sin is death. So if he didn't die, we would be done. In addition to believing in his death, Keller says we need to obey his word. And I think it's so interesting. We don't always understand his word. Sometimes God's word is, is challenging. How do, we, how, do we, how do we take it? How do we grasp it? I mean, there are times I, I've wrestled with how to present God's word to you each week. Sometimes it's so clear. Sometimes it's challenging, but it is there for us to read, to study, to ingest, to meditate on, and to obey. We might not always like what he says. Oh, God, you're so old-fashioned. Come on, God, get with the times. No. Let what's on the pages of Scripture inform our way of life. Let it guide our, dis- our decisions and our thought process. So believe in his death, obey his word. Thirdly, stop worrying. Stop worrying. When we worry, ultimately what happens is we put ourselves on the throne and we kick Jesus off the throne. We say, Jesus, you're not good. This situation is too much for you, Jesus. I've got this. And all the while we fret and worry and we put ourselves on the throne. And i got to tell you, I, I struggle with that. When it, whatever issue we might be going through, God, I think I got this. And instead, I need to say, no, God, this is in your hands. I'm going to trust you. So the last thing is to start expecting. 
Believe in his death, obey his word, stop worrying and start expecting. Start expecting that Jesus' reign in our lives will bring about the peace that he promised. That passage that Dan read, the first part of verse 5 says, and he shall be their peace. Hollywood, literature, folklore, and even politics often long for good old days. We look back and say, oh, if it was only like this again. They long for the greatness of the past to be lived out in the future, and ultimately they and we are longing for what only can be found in King Jesus. Is he your king? Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the promises that you've placed there, the, the hope that you provided for Israel about Jesus coming in the future. Lord, we thank you for the joy that we have of being able to look back and see how you fulfilled your word that beautiful night in Bethlehem so many years ago. And Lord, we look forward to that day when you will come again. So God, I pray that you would help us. Help us to trust in what you're doing. Help us to trust in who you are. Father, for those of us who don't yet believe, God, I pray that you would help us to believe in what you did on the cross and dying, paying the punishment of our sin, rising from the dead, bringing victory over our sin. Lord, help us to walk in the newness of life that we might be like dew on grass, being a refreshment, being a hope, being people of peace to our communities. Lord, you are our king, and we pray that we would represent you well all the places you call us to be. In Jesus' name.